as a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump. Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Well, happy January 6th, everyone. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. And today is actually Epiphany, uh, which is much more important than the liberal leftist propaganda that you've probably, hopefully, been ignoring all day. Uh, But Epiphany in the Western Christian tradition is the day that celebrates and remembers when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and the recognition that God incarnate uh, had come to earth. And of course, that is in Luke chapter 3. And I would encourage everyone today to go and read uh, that historical account from the Gospel of Luke or from uh, one of the other Gospels and to focus today on the fact that the reason we celebrated Christmas uh, just a few days ago, and that's why we have the tradition in the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, uh, because Christmas on December 25th, which marks and recognizes, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ, then you have the 12 days of Christmas and then Epiphany Eve, which would have been yesterday, January 5th, is the last of the 12 days. And then uh, Epiphany today marks actually the recognition and the beginning of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry that, of course, culminates in um, the week of Easter when we celebrate his life, death, and resurrection. And so the Christian tradition, while, of course, um, all of you know I'm Protestant, I'm not Catholic, um, I have a lot of really great Catholic friends. Um, ultimately, what matters isn't so much our denomination or affiliation. What matters is uh, the fact that we recognize the truth of the gospel and we recognize that Jesus Christ came to earth. Uh, he died and rose for our sins. We repent of our sins. We accept him as Lord and Savior, recognizing that we cannot merit salvation in and of ourselves. And so a lot of these traditions are actually really important. And the Bible does speak of uh, remembering the all of the movements of uh, God throughout human history, and especially the nation of Israel. Um, He told the Israelites so many times in the Old Testament, build a monument today that this is what the Lord has done in your life. So whenever I celebrate Epiphany and I think about the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry and how this is uh, the culmination of, or the beginning of the culmination of the foreshadowing of everything in the Old Testament and uh, what was to come and that Messiah had come uh, to earth and that we remember and we recognize the truth of that historical event. Um, that is just so awe-inspiring, and um, it actually it makes our lives seem so small in comparison. Uh, but the wonderful thing is that our lives are not small. They're very important um, to the Lord, and it's so important to recognize the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so as I celebrate Epiphany every year, I always think, what are the things Uh, of the year previous that God has done in my life? What um, markers are there that I can remember things throughout my life and especially over 
uh, the last year, and then um, new milestones of what do I want to accomplish uh, for the Lord this year. And I love that Epiphany is at the very beginning of January. Uh, it's New Year's resolution time, and uh, a lot of the the secular world is motivated on you know health and fitness and body image and all of those things. And of course, there's nothing wrong with health and fitness. It's a very good thing. But we need to focus beyond that, and we need to focus eternally, and we need to focus on our mission, which is to fulfill the Great Commission and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we're celebrating Epiphany today, which is always on January 6th, um, I hope that you'll take a moment to consider what are the milestones uh, in your life that you recognize and you uh, build a monument to the Lord for the work that he's done in your life, and what new things are you anticipating and are hopeful and joyfully uh, praying for over this year that you hope that God does in your life and also that you look forward to being faithful in doing for him in your life. Um, so that's just kind of kind of my opening, and I know we have a lot to talk about today about the Supreme Court case tomorrow. Before that, we need to talk about how the Biden administration has caused a financial crisis and they have absolutely no clue how to fix it. Our economy is in trouble and you need to take steps to protect yourself. Talking about health and fitness, well, that goes for your financial health as well. And if your money is all tied up in stocks and bonds and traditional markets, then you might be vulnerable. Gold is one of the best ways to protect your retirement. And no matter what happens, you own your own gold. It's real, it's physical, and it's always been invaluable since the dawn of time. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold, and they can help you with their personal one-on-one counseling tailored to your financial situation. They can help you roll a retirement account into a gold-backed IRA where you still own the physical gold. It is never too early to start investing in retirement. So did you know that a million dollars worth of gold can just fit in a shoebox? <laughs> I didn't actually know that till Legacy Precious Metals told me, and they can also ship gold and precious metals safely and securely to your house. So call Legacy Precious Metals today for a one-on-one consultation at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com where you can download the free investor's guide. All right, so the Supreme Court tomorrow is hearing what I think is going to be the most important case uh, apart from the Dobbs case, which of course is uh, looking at abortion and protecting the right to life in this country. We are still waiting on that opinion from the Supreme Court that I don't anticipate will come down until probably uh, the end of the June term. That's just typically when the Supreme Court does these things. But uh, this particular case tomorrow uh, is important because it is dealing with the Biden administration and the Occupational um, Health and Safety Administration's overreach in trying to mandate for federal employers as well as the private employers for 100-plus employees to have a vaccine mandate. So tomorrow, I want to just give you the highlights and what you can anticipate. Definitely tune in. I'm going to be doing a special Friday episode after the argument tomorrow to break down what we heard, what questions the justices asked. And, you know, oral argument is one of those things where 
it really gives an opportunity to uh, not only clarify perhaps the position of uh, the attorneys and and the position of uh, the posture of the case, but it's really more how the justices are um, bantering among themselves and possibly trying through a line of questioning to persuade their fellow colleagues. So imagine in the trial court setting when an attorney is having a conversation with a witness, but really the audience is the jury, right? That's who the attorney is always hoping to persuade. Well, oral argument is similar in the sense that uh, sometimes the audience is not the court of public opinion. It's not uh, actually the dialogue between the questioner justice and the attorney. Uh, The audience is actually the fellow panelists um, because they're going to deliberate and they're going to have to debate uh, what the majority opinion in the case is. And uh, importantly, for this case, this is just about a stay on the enforcement of this order that would go into effect later in January. And this is not on the merits of the case. So anything about whether or not uh, OSHA um, actually has, you know, this power, all of uh, the constitutional arguments, all of those things on the merits have not yet been fully litigated. This particular case is just an application that was submitted uh, by – it's the Heritage Foundation versus OSHA – And this is the emergency application for stay of agency action pending judicial review and for an administrative stay. So the huge win, bottom line here, is that if the Supreme Court grants that stay, then we can take our time litigating all of this through the lower courts. And ultimately, I think it will uh, come back up before the Supreme Court depending on how some things go. But the important thing for tomorrow, if you take one thing away from today, the very important thing is the Supreme Court has to grant that administrative stay because that will mean that the Biden administration cannot enforce their order and their vaccine mandate pending the full resolution and judicial review. So What's happened at the lower court is initially, um, and this is why there have been different headlines, and you may be confused of going back and forth going, well, wait a minute, I'm a federal contractor or I'm an employee and my work is saying I have to get vaccinated. And I've seen headlines that, well, yeah, now I have to, then I don't, now I have to again, what's going on? Well, that's because the lower courts have differed in their opinions. So initially, there was a stay that was put in place. And that was great. We all conservatives everywhere applauded that. You all know my position on the vaccine, that mandates are unconstitutional. This is a personal health decision that you have to decide what balance of risk you want to take. Um, Do you want to take the vaccine? Do you want to uh, take therapeutics if you contract COVID? Um, Do you want to take the risks of, uh, of taking the vaccine versus not taking the vaccine. Both decisions are risks, but they should be your decision. So initially, conservatives who understand that government has very, very limited power, conservatives celebrated that decision to stay OSHA from enforcing that mandate. That was then appealed to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit, unfortunately, reversed that. So that's when you saw the headlines, no, wait a second, this is all now back in place. So unfortunately, going into this 
emergency application for a stay, conservatives are asking the court to reverse the opinion of the Sixth Circuit. So that we're going in basically as uh, the ones who've lost at the lower level. So as long as the Supreme Court, somewhere in this opinion that they're going to issue after tomorrow's arguments, if they say the Sixth Circuit is reversed, that is the win, bottom line. We just want the Sixth Circuit to be reversed and the stay that was granted at the lower court to be reinstated. Okay, so uh, if you want to follow along on this case, you can actually listen to the oral arguments as well on the Supreme Court's website. There's also one on C-SPAN. A few others uh, do the live audio stream. It'll start at 10 a.m., and uh, you can go and and listen to that. Or if you just want to read uh, the briefing in this case, there's a lot. Um, so I'm just going to summarize it for you today and give you uh, the top line arguments that both are going to present, both sides are going to present. But if you want to look at this for yourself, and I think it's it's interesting, it's one of the more interesting cases to read if you're going to go through and kind of see how uh, a Supreme Court case life looks like. You can go to supremecourt.gov, and they have a a docket search tab. You can click on that, and the docket number for this case is 21 for the year 2021. It was filed um, in December, December 18th of last year. So 21A, um, the application, 249. So it's number 21A249, and it's the Heritage Foundation versus the Department of Labor, Occupational Safety, and Health Administration et al., okay, meaning and others. So the first document that's filed is this application for the emergency stay. And so uh, so this particular application, um, and we're going to go through this, the question presented, which this is the main question before the court, did the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, or OSHA, exceed its lawful statutory and constitutional authority by issuing the emergency temporary standard, what's been called the ETS, on November 5th, 2021, entitled COVID-19 Vaccination and Testing Emergency Temporary Standard. That's the question. Did OSHA exceed its lawful statutory and constitutional authority? And so, and the answer Uh, of course, that conservatives are wanting the court to say is, yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, why? And so when you look at uh, the arguments here um, in the reply brief, that's actually where uh, we see the main arguments for heritage. This was just filed on January 3rd, um, so Monday. And um, our friends at the American Center for Law and Justice filed this. And their main argument is a couple of things. But first, their main argument is the applicants have established a likelihood of success on the merits. So when you're asking for what the court deems more of an extraordinary measure, which is to uh, have a a stay or an injunction pending uh, the outcome of litigation, that's an extraordinary remedy. Basically saying, if you don't stay this decision right now, court, there will be irreparable harm that will occur to one of the parties, obviously the movement, uh, their client, there will be irreparable harm. So we need to wait on any further action until we can fully litigate this. And if you establish a likelihood of success on the merits of, uh, of the full litigation, then typically that's the standard that you need to overcome in order to have that, um, that injunction put in place. So they give 
basically four bullet point arguments. OSHA's vaccine mandate is an unlawful exercise of statutory authority. OSHA's assertion of grave danger and necessity is severely undermined by the actual standards promulgated and reasoning provided in the mandate, so they're undercutting themselves. The government's major doctrine, major questions doctrine argument is unavailing, meaning uh, the government is um, is asserting an argument that doesn't actually give them any remedy in the court. So a lot of this is is legal speak, um, but hopefully I'm breaking this down for you that um, you can understand. And if you listen to the arguments tomorrow, you'll have some context. And finally, fourth, the vaccine mandate violates the Commerce Clause and the Tenth Amendment. Uh, the second main argument is the balance of equities warrant the stay. That, to me, is the key argument. Um, but then they also have a third argument that in the alternative, basically, okay, if we're arguing all of this, and this is the main reason, court, that you need to uh, hold in our favor, grant the stay. But in the alternative, if you decide against that, the court should grant cert before judgment and grant a stay pending the resolution of this petition. So they're they're giving an, an in-the-alternative argument, which lawyers do all the time, basically saying we don't get everything we want up front, then in the alternative, this would be better than uh, just holding in favor of the other party. So the biggest argument here to me um, is the balance of equities. And so if you actually go down and um, and you look at the reply brief here. This starts on uh, page 11. So I'm going to scroll down here on page 11 and just uh, go through this with you. This is what the brief says. The government's summary dismissal of the assertion that irreparable harm can and does result from constitutional violations is problematic. There is no more compelling reason for issuing a stay than when, as here, a regulation violates constitutional principles and undermines American vertical and horizontal separation of powers, the true metal of the U.S. Constitution, the true long-term guardian of liberty. Contrary to OSHA's claim, a deprivation of constitutional rights, not just First Amendment rights, constitutes irreparable injury to justify injunctive relief. And then they quote um, this case, Ross v. Meese, where the court, in that opinion, said the denial of a constitutional right constitutes irreparable harm for the purposes of equitable jurisdiction. So that's the law on which they're relying. Goes on to say, moreover, the government ignores legal precedent establishing that compliance with a regulation later held invalid almost always produces the irreparable harm of non-recoverable compliance costs. The serious irreversible harms the vaccine mandate will pose to employees is not an improper consideration by this court in balancing the equities where, as here, the government purports to represent employees' interests. So the government... Uh, and OSHA was saying, well, if you don't impose this stay, then there could be uh, irreparable harm and the balance of equities actually is in favor of the government because employees uh, or employers rather may be forced to incur compliance costs by uh, by shutting down if there is a COVID-19 outbreak, if we don't actually have this vaccine mandate in place. Well, the the thing to me that is so 
ridiculous and absurd about that proposition is that we've seen, especially over the last few months, and Fauci and others um, in the Biden administration have admitted that even people who are vaccinated and boosted still contract and can spread COVID-19. So the entire premise of this mandate fails because they're OSHA is asserting that this is necessary for workplace safety and health compliance, but their reasoning that employers would have to shut down and, and incur those expenses if there's an outbreak isn't mitigated at all, like not even a little bit from what they're actually asserting if the vaccine mandate were to actually go into effect. So, um, so that's that's interesting. And, and so the brief goes on to say the government's asserted interest is in direct conflict with that of unvaccinated employees and ignores the other harms to them. And then also quoting another opinion, a reluctant or, co or coerced vaccination cannot be undone if the secretary changes course during the notice and comment process or if the proposed rule exceeds the secretary's authority. So um, so that's and sorry, that's actually quoting the federal law. Um, so when a vaccination is imposed and as we know, this has gone through the emergency use authorization and there are still um, issues going on with the vaccine. Obviously, if people are compelled to receive it by the government and they wouldn't have otherwise chosen to, but they're choosing now for compliance to save their job or whatever other coercive reason, it can't be undone. That to me is the central point here. The balance of equities absolutely is in favor of the stay because you cannot unvaccinate yourself once you've accepted the vaccine. And so if it is coerced and compelled, that is the most significant harm in this case possible. And while people have received the vaccine, they've been fine, that's the, the harm of coercion of taking that cannot be undone. And so if later this case ends up, OSHA can impose the mandate, people get vaccinated against their will, against their free choice, they're reluctant, they're, they're coerced, and then this is litigated all the way through the lower courts and it comes to the Supreme Court and they say, yeah, uh, this is an unlawful exercise of statutory authority. It's unconstitutional. Whatever their reason, through the, the merit-based litigation, it's overturned. Then what happens to all of these theoretically millions of Americans who were coerced into taking the vaccine and now the Supreme Court is saying, yeah, it's unconstitutional? on the merits. That's why the the balance of equities argument is in my opinion the strongest because there is no other way that you can ever make a person whole or not suffer the harm of being coerced by vaccine. There are other harms that potentially could be incurred. Yes. I mean if if a um, employer has to shut down their business for um, you know, a COVID outbreak or they, they even lose their business. People can recover financially. People can recover uh, property. People can recover. And that's not even a certainty or a guarantee. And it's absolutely not a certainty because the vaccinated can contract and spread COVID anyway. So even if some harm is incurred, it is not irreparable and not nearly to the extent that a vaccinated person 
who is coerced into getting that vaccine will suffer. So that's the balance of equities argument. So, so you might be asking, well, what on earth is is the government arguing then? Because that seems really straightforward. And even if you are listening to this and you're an advocate and a proponent of the vaccine, I hope that you are not a proponent of the mandate because that is clearly, clearly unconstitutional. So all that the government is saying, and I'll read their summary of their argument, but basically their argument is that Congress has expressly provided OSHA the clear authority to issue an emergency temporary standard to address occupational exposures to the coronavirus. And so the ETS doesn't um, present any issue. So they're saying Congress has provided OSHA the clear authority. So um, when Congress delegates to OSHA, this isn't um, exceeding their statutory authority. The issue with that is that occupational standards, occupational health and safety is not is not this overbroad. I mean, occupational is um, is something that you may have a health and safety uh, measure in the workforce. Like, you know, we've all seen there are certain standards for construction zones. There are certain standards for restaurants um, for health and safety, like wearing hairnets or, um, you know, other types of cleanliness standards. I mean, those types of things are occupational because they deal directly with the subject and the occupation and the medium and uh, product that you're dealing with. Like if you deal with chemicals all the time, there are different ways that you can have to um, to comply with chemical regulations or uh, waste disposal, you know, some of these things that are for health and safety. And so Congress has provided OSHA authority to issue temporary emergency temporary standards to address occupational exposures. But when it's occupational to the coronavirus, to the extent that they're trying to impose a vaccine mandate that is completely um, arbitrary and it's and it's extended and indefinite. That's not an emergency temporary standard, and that's not occupational. Contracting the coronavirus and your personal risk assessment for that has nothing to do with your occupation. There is not one data point that suggests if you are a restaurant worker versus a realtor versus a flight attendant. Uh, versus a construction worker, you know, anyone else that you personally, just by virtue of your occupation, are more or less at risk of contracting and spreading the coronavirus. Um, so you can't even look at people, for example, people who work in a restaurant. All of them come from different backgrounds. What if someone comes from a very large family that they're exposed to their immediate family's other occupations? Uh, I mean, there are so many different factors here that, to me, it's absolutely absurd. There is no nexus between the occupation itself and this particular emergency temporary standard. So there's no occupational exposure. It's not like, you know, you're going in and you're saying, okay, this is a um, a facility that deals with chemicals and there are noxious gases that you may be exposed to. So uh, we're having to put in, you know, this type of a regulation because people who specifically work at this particular job location in this particular line of work will be exposed to certain particular health and safety risks. That's fair. That's logical. But for OSHA to go and say that just because you happen to work at any company, 
that has 100 plus employees that somehow you are now required to be vaccinated. Um, Justice Gorsuch asked this question um, in another in another setting, um, but along similar lines where he was saying, OK, well, uh, what about the the trucker who is in his cabin of his car and his semi truck for the entire day? And obviously the uh, the trucking company has more than 100 employees, but how is he going to be at any greater risk just because his company happens to have more than 100 employees? There's no rational relation here. This is just the administration trying to overreach and trying to forcibly compel individuals to comply with this ridiculous mandate. So the government summary of the argument, though, I want to read this really quickly. They say, first, we demonstrate that the Sixth Circuit correctly concluded that Congress has expressly provided OSHA with clear authority to issue standards governing infectious diseases that pose a hazard in the workplace, including specifically COVID-19, and to do so in the kind of exigent circumstances workers currently face by issuing an ETS. Most recently, Congress appropriated funds to OSHA, quote, for enforcement activities related to COVID-19, unquote. Congress thereby plainly recognized that COVID-19 is a workplace hazard subject to regulation by OSHA. Insert Jenna's comment. Now, that's a stretch. Going back, moreover, Congress made the appropriation after the president had ordered OSHA to consider whether any emergency temporary standards on COVID-19 are necessary. And Congress previously expressly recognized OSHA's authority to require both vaccination and medical examination of workers with religious objections. Additional congressional actions and decades of agency practice provide further support of OSHA's issuance of an ETS. In light of Congress's clear delegation of authority to OSHA, the ETS does not present any issue under either the major question or the non-delegation doctrine. Um, really quickly, the non-delegation doctrine just means that this, the separation of powers in our branches of government, one branch can't delegate its authority to another branch um, in its entirety. So, for example, Congress can't delegate to the executive branch, the lawmaking function, because Article 1, Section 1 says that all lawmaking authority is given to Congress. So uh, the Supreme Court has recognized in that doctrine that because the Constitution expressly recognizes the separation of powers, they can't uh, just, just basically say, well, we're going to delegate our constitutional authority to a different branch. Um, that would abuse the separation of powers. So then they go on, and, um, and I'll skip over a little bit here, but it says, Finally, we show that the balance of equities and the public interest strongly favor protecting workers from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and that any stay of the ETS will contribute to a substantial increase in death and illness among Americans, among working Americans. So I, I think this is really uh, tomorrow if I'm right in, in predicting, I think that a lot of the oral argument is going to come down to this balance of equities argument. Um, they're definitely going to talk about whether or not um, OSHA exceeded the statutory authority, whether Congress intended just by uh, giving them some um, monies appropriated to deal with uh, COVID-19, whether that that justifies uh, a vaccine mandate. I don't think so. But also, where, where are the balance of equities here? Because the irreparable harm is going to be incurred by any of the employees that have to suffer a coerced vaccine that cannot be undone 
versus the potential harm to employers that may have to shut down anyway uh, because of a, of a COVID-19 outbreak. I mean, there have been – there was a restaurant recently in New York City that had to shut down and do a thorough cleansing, and all of its staff were fully vaccinated. So there's literally no justification for this argument. And I think all of the last few weeks and the last few months uh, show that, at least in terms of the data that has been shown from the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Really, the only difference, if we want to argue the merit on that, there is some argument that the vaccine can help minimize uh, illness and death. But minimizing isn't substantial enough to overcome this argument of the balance of equities. So finally, in their reply, the ACLJ said this, which I think brilliantly summarizes the position of why this stay needs to be granted. They said this in their reply brief that was submitted on January 3rd. The president recently conceded that there is no federal solution to the pandemic. Rather, the problem should be solved at the state level. Nonetheless, the government incorrectly asserts a wide-ranging power to impose a vaccine mandate upon millions of Americans. No branch of the federal government, much less a federal agency, has ever attempted to impose a vaccine mandate. No doubt, if the mandate is upheld, OSHA will assert an expansive power to address whatever health and safety challenges it desires, including safety challenges of today, including air pollution, violent crime, obesity, a violent flu, all manner of communicable diseases, or tomorrow, the impact of using the Internet on mental health, etc., simply because most Americans who face such endemic risks also have jobs and simply because they face those same risks on the clock. I think that is the power punch. That is exactly what needs to be argued tomorrow. And we need to pray that the Supreme Court will recognize that not only is this mandate unconstitutional, it will cause such a disruption to the economy. Uh, Just yesterday, I was reading an article where um, the United States Post Office has actually asked Biden for an extension of enforcement because they're saying if this goes into effect, then we don't think that we can deliver mail as efficiently and timely as we need to. I mean, this is the impact of this is evil. I think it's purposeful that the only reason they are trying to impose this mandate is not because of health and safety, but it's to depress the economy. It's to coerce Americans into recognizing that they are the petty tyrants and complying, but also and even more dangerously. As the ACLJ said, if the vaccine mandate is upheld, OSHA will assert an expansive power to address whatever health and safety challenges it desires. There are already articles out there talking about the health and safety challenges of climate change. That's where this is going. They are going to try to use this precedent to then shoehorn in whatever they want to under the auspices of health and safety. So the Supreme Court has to act here. They have to grant this stay. And then we will live to fight another day, have all the litigation through the lower court, and hopefully at the end of the day, have an opinion that clearly tells the federal government, 
No. OSHA is about and you know it's about occupational health and safety, not an overbroad thing that can impact literally any American regardless of their line of work. This doesn't make sense. It's an overreach. And it's completely unconstitutional. So if you want to read the full arguments again, go to supremecourt.gov, uh, go to the search results for the docket search, and this is case number 21A249. So uh, joining me now is going to be my friend Harmeet Dillon, who is a fantastic lawyer, and uh, she actually represents the Daily Wire. They are one of the organizations that uh, has over 100-plus employees, and uh, they have pushed back against this. They are part of this fight, and I want to get her reaction on uh, what she expects for tomorrow and what she hopes to accomplish, and before we get to her... Um, I want to talk to you about, of course, our good friend Mike Lindell. And right now, he has a great offer for MyPillow going into the new year. It is a great towel offer on the six-piece set. I have this in the sage green color. I love it. It's fantastic. And towels, regular towels, just don't seem to dry you anymore, especially if you're on the East Coast a lot like me and there's a lot of humidity. It may seem like that. And they feel soft and all of that in the stores, but when you get them home, they just don't absorb well. And Mike Lindell at MyPillow found that around 2006 or so, towels changed forever. They started importing them and adding softeners and other things to the cotton that made them feel good, but they just didn't work. So he found the best towel company right here in the USA. They have proprietary technology to create towels that feel just as soft, but actually work like towels should. Hey, functionality is a great thing. They're all made in the USA, and they come with a MyPillow 60-day money-back guarantee. So right now, you can get the six-piece set that includes two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths made in the USA regularly, $109, now just $39.99, but you have to use the promo code Jenna. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials, and get discounts on all MyPillow products, including the towels. Enter promo code Jenna or call 800-564-8475 for all of these great specials and use the promo code Jenna. And joining me now is my good friend who is an amazing attorney and the uh, president and founder of the Dillon Law Group, Harmeet Dillon. Uh, Harmeet, thanks so much for joining me. And I wanted to just get your take on the arguments for tomorrow, what you think are the best arguments and your prediction on how the court is going to end up with this stay. Well, thanks for having me, Jenna. It's a very important set of cases. Our client, The Daily Wire, is one of several who filed in the Supreme Court. And out of the many cases that were filed, over a dozen, uh, the court selected one, uh, one private sector plaintiff to argue and one set of government uh, attorneys general to argue in the large employer case. And as you probably know, the court is also hearing a separate case involving medical care providers. What's so important here in this case is, I mean, there are many important issues. And I think that on any one of these issues, the court could hang its hat to uh, uphold the original Fifth Circuit stay, that is to strike down this OSHA mandate. So the issues that I think are going to be focused on by the two um, selected uh, appellants there are going to be whether OSHA has the power delegated to it by Congress at all 
to classify American workers effectively as hazardous substances in the workplace, or if you want to put it a little more mildly, to mandate medical treatment for workers as a condition of employment. Uh, we have argued that Congress never intended OSHA to have that power in the first place. Okay, so that's like the overall highest sort of technical argument. We have also argued that even if OSHA had that power, issuing such a mandate through an emergency, air quotes, stay, um, emergency order, I should say, is not permitted in these circumstances where this pandemic has been going on for the better part of two years, where there has been plenty of opportunity in the last um, several months, all of 2021, to do the proper notice and comment period that normally accompanies any administrative rulemaking out of Washington, that this type of emergency order is simply not permitted by law. The other arguments that we're going to see made are going to include the very important argument that I suspect the uh, attorneys general are going to focus on, which is separation of powers. The federal government has very limited police power. So even if Congress were to purport to assign to OSHA the right to make sweeping medical treatment mandates for American workers in the workplace affecting uh, you know, more than half the workforce, that th this is beyond the power delegated to Congress by the people in the United States Constitution, which in fact delegates most of these powers to the states. So. Now that argument is an interesting argument because it necessarily follows that it's possible for the states to do certain mandates like this. And indeed, that's the circumstance that uh, lawyers who've been following these cases know from the United States case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which I argue is a very outdated law, but if you were to accept it as current law, in that case, the state of Massachusetts issued a vaccine, not a vaccine, sorry, a mask mandate for smallpox at the time and, and other treatment at that time, uh, you know, vaccination was part of that, I'm sorry, and, um, and issued a uh, order that was based on state police power. And so really the court could look at any of these arguments. The court could rule that the federal government itself has no police power to issue this type of mandate. That would resolve the case in our favor. The court could also rule that Congress never delegated this type of power to OSHA in the first place, and that could resolve the case in our favor. The court could also rule that even if Congress delegated that power, and even if they had the power in the first place to delegate, that emergency rulemaking is inappropriate in this type of circumstance, and that OSHA has to issue notice and comment. And then finally, one of the arguments that we made in our papers is that the science that the OSHA used to issue this order, namely a supposed infection spike occurring in American workplaces, traceable to the workplaces, that that is fake science. You know, we have it, we have provided the courts uh, in the Sixth Circuit and and in the Supreme Court with our uh, expert opinions that clearly demonstrate that the so-called evidence that OSHA relied upon in its voluminous uh, papers to issue this mandate simply doesn't exist. They, they point to certain spikes in the workplace that are simply not borne out when you look at the data correctly. And in fact, they really don't have any evidence 
to support the theory that there's widespread transmission of the disease by unvaccinated people. Because in fact, as we know now, which has even been recent weeks information, the Omicron variant is rapidly spreading by and to vaccinated people, including boosted people. So so these are all the set of arguments that we are hoping will be aired out in the court. I am actually pretty hopeful about the court reaching the correct decision here. And it may do it on one of those lesser technical arguments. It may do it on the overarching. I would I would think the most important argument would be the separation of powers argument. But on any of those, we win. And on any of those, uh, I believe this OSHA mandate, which I think the president was frankly well aware was not warranted by the law, will fall on its face. Yeah, well, that's encouraging to hear that you're hopeful because um, I know this has you know, gone back and forth and um, Americans are getting first one ruling, then another, and are you know, it's very unfair, frankly, for the American people and the workforce to have to consider, okay, am I going to have to uh, be compelled to get a vaccine if I'm otherwise uh, hesitant or resistant, or am I going to lose my job, have to change a line of work? I mean, all of these things are incredibly fundamental to our American way of life. And um, I hope that the Supreme Court will implement this stay and that they'll also be more broad and not just address uh, the stay itself, but some of these um, not only technical arguments, but constitutional ones. And um, the other one that I mentioned earlier in the show that I think is is actually very, very strong and possibly the strongest argument is the balance of equities. And, you know, you can't unring the bell in a in a vaccine. And so if we go through all of the litigation and um, it ultimately ends up that they say, yeah, OK, the Supreme Court says, OSHA doesn't have uh, this authority. It's not borne out by the science, whatever the reason, you can't unring that bell. And so what are your thoughts on that particular line of argument and whether that's persuasive? Well, I think it's a very persuasive argument. I think in the United States Supreme Court, what we have seen is, and I, you know, both between my law firm and my nonprofit, I was honored with three successes in the United States Supreme Court last year on an injunction footing. Uh, what I have seen from that process is if there's a very clear legal argument, that's going to be your best bet at the Supreme Court or in a court of appeals on an injunction type setting. If the court has to get into the weighing of the facts and the weighing of the equities and frankly, you know, getting into the science, I and think that, that the court's not willing to do that. And so I think, um, you know, if, if the court is persuaded, however, which I think, frankly, that the, the rapidity with which the court accepted these petitions for argument, selected petitioners, and scheduled this for a full hearing as opposed to doing what's uh, mockingly called a shadow docket where the court grants, vacates, and remands without a hearing. I think this suggests to me that a lot of Supreme Court clerks have been working throughout the holidays to draft competing opinions here. But the bulk of the, um, I think when you look at the jurisprudence of the justices, different arguments are going to appeal to different uh, justices uh, on the conservative side. But I think ultimately, I think we're going to be able to get there with a combination of these arguments. Um, balancing the equities may be of a, appeal to uh, one or two of the justices, uh, but I think some of them are going to go for the safer ground of OSHA mm-hmm. doesn't have the power. Uh, this is not an emergency proceeding. 
uh, the federal government doesn't have this power. One of those arguments, I think, mm-hmm. is, is going to prevail. That's, that's really interesting insight, Harmeet, that, may, that an argument that may be persuasive won't necessarily end up in the opinion or they'll go for the safer grounding in the written opinion, even if they're persuaded uh, by something else. So, um, so, you know, oral argument is tomorrow. How soon do you anticipate that they'll issue their ruling? I think they'll issue their ruling very quickly because the mandate itself is set to go into effect next week. And in fact, uh, at my law firm, which handles employment law, our firm has been deluged with with requests from employees all over the United States asking for help on these issues. And we frankly can't help them, actually, uh, because employers under U.S. law have a right to mandate vaccination, whether the government mandates it or not, is a separate issue. So that's really the issue. This is really going to be the most important to employers like my client, The Daily Wire, and all the other uh, employer clients out there who filed cases in the Supreme Court and in the lower circuit courts, who may very well believe in vaccination, maybe have a high percentage of vaccination, but they simply don't think it's their job to, uh, to impose medical choices on their employees. I mean, I'm in that situation at my law firm. Uh, the vast majority of my employees and I am vaccinated. I, I, I abhor the idea of dictating medical choices to my employees or making that a condition of employment from liability reasons and from personal choice and freedom reasons. And so if you work for an employer like that, this case is going to matter to you. If you work for an employer who thinks it's their business to tell you what drugs to take, the Supreme Court ruling is not going to help you. I want to be very clear about that. So even if we win at the Supreme Court, if your employer wants to mandate vaccination on you, they can do that under current law, which I hope when Republicans take charge of our government again, we change that, but I'm not very hopeful. And so em- employees out there who don't like this type of tyranny should be seeking employers who are not going to impose their choices on the employees on private medical decisions like this. Yeah, that's a great point. And also to make sure, you know, I mean, I've I've been uh, deluged as well with requests for religious liberty exemptions and, you know, some of those things. And um, it, it does matter where you're employed. It does matter uh, that we have choices, though, as well. You know, so that the, the, this is not the government that's imposing uh, any of these conditions. So, um, so Hermine, I know you have to get to uh, another appointment, but I really appreciate your insight. And I will be hopeful that uh, the Supreme Court is going to do the right thing constitutionally and conservatively. And uh, hopefully, as you said, you know, if the Republicans get in in, in 2022, um, I haven't been very impressed with their spine lately, but maybe um, since they've seen the year of destruction that is Joe Biden and that administration, uh, they'll have some guts to actually correct some of this. Uh, so thanks so much. And where can people reach you? Uh, they can reach me at, well, they can follow my legal work at the Center for American Liberty, www.libertycenter.org, and on Twitter at P-N-J-A-B-A-N, and on Instagram, the same handle. And frankly, finally, at my law firm, www.dillonlaw.com. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. And definitely worth following her meet. I do. I uh, learn a lot from her insights and uh, her legal experience. And uh, she's been a great friend and um, you know, is really fighting hard for freedom and liberty. And so the work that she does along with um, all of her colleagues uh, there is just phenomenal and, and it's exceptional. So we wish you the best with your client and also, uh, you know, Daily Wire, good friends and in the Supreme Court tomorrow. Thanks for me. Thank you.